Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Meaning comes along when there actually is a purpose and a goal and a transcendence. And that has to transcend this overwhelming sense of ourselves as political avatars and algorithms. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are facing our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on our show, what just happened? The GOP's first debate, Trump's interview with Tucker Carlson, and then the return of one of my favorite Bulletin segments, where CT's Daniel Silliman stops by to tell us what's weird. So Nicole Martin is out this week, but joining me once again is Russell Moore. Russ, good morning. Good morning. So there was a lot of ambivalence, I think, coming into this debate as to whether or not it would matter, whether it was going to be of any significance, whether the candidates were going to go after one another or if anyone was going to attack Trump. I think it's fair to say that it was spirited, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to say the least. Let's just start sort of big picture overall impressions. What are your overall impressions of what we saw last night at the debate? I think it matters that it didn't matter. I think that there were a lot of people who were expecting, well, maybe somebody is going to break through in a way that's going to be electrifying and set up the contours of Trump or who. You know, because there are a lot of people who are saying, well, you know, he's so unpopular and so disliked, he won't be the nominee. Until you say, okay, well, who's beating him? And those people usually don't have an answer to that. Well, it's something will happen. And so I think a lot of people were waiting to see if that was the case last night. And I don't think that we saw it. I think we saw some people who were in the case of, say, a a Nikki Haley and Mike Pence really up on policy, good on those things. Chris Christie, convictional, truth-telling. Vivek Ramaswamy, annoying, but dominating the stage in a way Mm -hmm. that these days is seen as strength. But there really wasn't anybody that you would say, oh, okay, well, this is the natural competitor for Mm -hmm. 2024. I think I generally agree with that. I think the presence of Vivek Ramaswamy certainly made for an interesting element to the debate. And I say that because it wasn't just the sort of obnoxious persona sort of the antagonisms and the various ways that he presented himself. But you really do see a significant generational gap between the way he thinks about what the Republican message is, who the Republican audience is. We actually have a clip from him talking at one point in the night that I thought kind of provided the most stark contrast between where Vivek was coming from and where a Mike Pence or a Nikki Haley was coming from. We're in the middle of a national identity crisis. And I say this as a member of my generation, the problem in our country right now The reason we have that mental health epidemic is that people are so hungry for purpose and meaning at a time when family, faith, patriotism, hard work have all disappeared. 
What we really need is a tonal reset from the top, saying that this is what it means to be an American. Yes, we will stand for the rule of law. Yes, we will close the southern border where criminals are coming in every day. And yes, we will back law enforcement because we remember who we really are. And that's also how we address that mental health epidemic in the next generation that is directly leading to violent crime. So let's pull the last segment out of that for just a moment. To hear a candidate saying people have lost a sense of purpose, they've lost a sense of meaning and all of that. I think there's a lot about that that resonates with people. And I know quite a few people that have surprised me with how much they like Vivek and how much they're resonating with him. There's something about him that's clicking with people. What seems obvious to me is that it's a complete non sequitur to say people have lost meaning. So we need to close the southern border and have stronger <laughs> law and order in the United States. Those Mexicans taking our meaning. Right. <laughs> so there's no rationality in the thread. But that idea, I think, did resonate. And what was so interesting about that exchange, you heard Pence kind of coming in there at the end. Pence responded to him by basically saying, the American people don't lack purpose. The American people don't lack meaning. And he gave kind of a Reaganite, morning in America picture of, this is who the American people are, and this is who they were. And while I don't resonate at all with Vivek's overall message, I also don't think Pence is right. I don't think the vast majority of Americans right now are sitting here going, my life is full of meaning and full of purpose and full of value, and I just need the government to get out of my way so that I can flourish. I mean, you're right. What Pence is doing is operating out of the normal political atmosphere in the United States. We think that our lives can be filled by what we can buy. Everything he was saying was true, but you're not supposed to say that because that's not how you motivate the country to move forward. And so Reagan was able to say that the problem is not a crisis of confidence in the people, it's in the government. And that always resonates until recent years where a bleak dystopian view of the country actually is what resonates with a lot of people. So that's a big shift. You're right that he is correct that there's a loss of meaning and purpose, The the very thing that he's wanting to replace it with, though, is part of the problem. You can't fill meaning and purpose with policy solutions, and you can't fill meaning and purpose with political campaigns and personalities. That's a large degree of why we're in a state, a lacking of meaning and purpose. And when one comes in and kind of vaguely and generically says faith— I had a friend who texted me at one point when Vivek said something about God, we need to return to God. And my friend texted and said, which one? (laughs) Vivek is Hindu. There are so many to, Mm -hmm. to choose from. Well, what he's doing is a classic sort of political move of saying generically faith and God, that's going to get, but it's not generic sort of small M meaning, let's just will it into existence. Meaning comes along when there actually is a purpose and a goal and a transcendence, and that has to transcend this overwhelming sense of ourselves as political avatars and algorithms and nothing much more. But nobody's going to stand up and say, the American people need meaning and purpose, and I can't deliver it to them. That's not a message that someone wants to get. To me, it's why sort of across the board, because of the way the GOP's issues, the Republican issues, are dominated by Trump, 
all of these things end up kind of falling flat. Like we're still living in the shadow of Trump's American carnage inauguration address. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this sense of conservatives and people on the right being sort of under siege. And it almost feels as though until the Trump phenomenon is sort of fully exercised from the system, whether that's the next election or the judicial process or, you know, four more years, mm -hmm. you know, if that's what it ends up being, we're not going to move past that conversation because it's very hard to then hear Mike Pence say, look, people don't need this from the top down, which is sort of that Reaganite message. People, mm -hmm. you know, people don't need purpose and meaning. They need the government to get out of their way or whatever. If the dominant message that conservatives are hearing is, but they're coming to get you and your way of life and the things you love and value are all under threat right now, I don't know how a positive message breaks through. Yeah, but it also is the case that it seemed like, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, first thing is, it was almost like the youth pastors preaching on Sunday night. Okay, that's kind of cool. We know the pastor will be back next week. That was the attitude that people had as they're watching this because it's like, okay, these guys are debating, but there's somebody not there who's 40 points ahead of them all. So, you know, what really is this? Is it trying out for vice president? Mike Pence knows he's not going that way again. But is that what this is or, or is it something else? But also because I think you had a, you know, when you said they're coming to take this away from you, I think they had difficulty last night defining who the they is, who the they mm -hmm. are. Because, I mean, if you're going to demagogue, and I don't think that it's the right thing to do, but if you are going to do it, you have to do it with enough specificity to really get people scared. Trump knows right. how to do that. You know, Mexicans are rapists. They're bringing drugs. They're being, you know, we, we all remember that. But just sort of this, our border is being invaded is abstract enough that it doesn't throw out the kind of red meat that people are expecting. And mm -hmm. so you've got kind of a thrashing around. Is it that there was a lot less of the woke commentary than I expected. It seems like that has really exhausted itself. So it didn't really even come up at all. And they were just, what is it that we're actually afraid of? I don't think there was a lot of clarity there at all. Yeah, the one place that none of these people can compete with Trump is with shamelessness. Yeah. And that's where when Trump says, you know, the Mexicans are coming over and he's the specificity of, mm -hmm. like you say, the demagoguery. For whatever else you might want to say, if you're a critic of these candidates, they don't possess the same level of sort of direct shamelessness that Trump does in attacking Mexicans by name or um, Rosie O'Donnell countries yeah. or <laughs> Rosie O'Donnell, yeah, as the case may be. One of the issues that came up last night that's been really kind of front and center for conservatives and particularly for pro-life conservatives for the last couple of years is where does the pro-life movement 
go from here? And what do we do about abortion? This was one of Nikki Haley's comments in terms of what she would do as president. We need to stop demonizing this issue. This is talking about the fact that unelected justices didn't need to decide something this personal because it's personal for every woman and man. Now it's been put in the hands of the people. That's great. When it comes to a federal ban, let's be honest with the American people and say it will take 60 Senate votes. It will take a majority of the House. So in order to do that, let's find consensus. Can't we all agree that we should ban late-term abortions? Can't we all agree that we should encourage adoptions? Can't we all agree that doctors and nurses who don't believe in abortion shouldn't have to perform them? Can't we all agree that contraception should be available? And can't we all agree that we are not going to put a woman in jail or give her the death penalty if she gets an abortion? Let's treat this like the like a respectful issue that it is and humanize the situation and stop demonizing the situation. So immediately after this... Pence responded and in many ways essentially agreed, but did not want to sort of meet her at the point of incrementalism because I believe Pence is in favor of a much earlier ban or maybe an outright ban. I, I can't recall. A national legislation. And she's right in terms of the actual situation because you're not going to get 60 votes no matter what in the United States Senate for almost any kind of ban on abortion. And so everybody there knows, okay, this isn't going to happen, at least not in the next presidential term. And it won't happen until there's a huge sea change in American life when it comes to this issue. So they know that. What was interesting to me is the language that Governor Haley was using of its personal with a woman and with a man seemed to indicate more than just federalism, this is a state issue, don't try to tell them what to do. It seemed like she's using language that's pro-choice language. I'm not saying she's pro-choice, but the, the right. language she was using of the individual of this being personal, and then to go on and make her point. What was interesting to me, and I know we can't, the, the crowd in the room is not who's making these decisions, but it, you can tell some things about what a Fox News crowd is resonating with and not. And she had a very good response to her comments. Doug Burgum had a pretty good response, relatively speaking, or did, certainly didn't have booze when he talked about that. And those who were calling for the federal legislation kind of fell flat in the room. And that sort of tracks with me with what I think we're seeing, which is in the Republican Party, a Abortion is kind of forgotten, mm -hmm. except in terms of at the state level, you have state legislatures passing these bills, but the national leadership, they're worried about it because they see all of this polling data and they also see all of these states, red, red states that are knocking down pro-life referenda all the time. And it seems to me that what she was trying to do is to say, I'm going to dangle out here a general election message. It says we're not going to have the extreme late-term abortion. She knows how that polls. But we're also not going to keep going. So for the people, it's like she's trying to appeal to the person who says, you know, I don't like abortion, but I don't know. How far are they going to go? 
seems like she was trying to appeal to that person. What do you make of this? Like you said, this is something we've seen in whether it was the recent referendum in Ohio, there's been one sort of related to it in Kentucky and another in Kansas. Every one of these loses in terms of if you divide the vote up pro-life, pro-choice. Everyone's a loser for the pro-life cause so far. Why do you think that is? Do you think that the general attitude is more lax on abortion? Or do you think that the pro-life cause has kind of fallen down on the job in terms of messaging or activating its base or communicating what's at stake in each of these? I think the primary issue is that it's not pro-choicers getting abortions exclusively. It's pro-life people theoretically and ideologically, but who have this when they get into a moment of crisis. So you will have the person who is railing against the pro-choice position and how awful it is, and I've seen this many, many times, but when a daughter gets pregnant, they're slipping out down the road. I mean, that is happening over and over and over and over again and has been for a long time. That's why I never really bought into all the polls that would say, oh, this amount of people are pro-life. Yeah, I just agree with that old feminist statement. I'm not agree with it in terms of what it's arguing, but I agree with it in terms of analysis of fallen American life right now. Most Americans are pro-life with three exceptions, rape, incest, and my situation. And so when you have people, they're not at a rally. They're going in and they're just personally secret ballot voting on this. They're rejecting it. And so I think what that means is you can't just have a legislative solution. You have to have legislation. You don't have justice for vulnerable unborn children and their mothers if you don't have it. So the people who would say, oh, we just need to change hearts and minds, we don't approach any other social justice and human rights issue that way, nor should we. But it's not less than that. You also have to have this communicating to people why we should pursue nonviolent means of helping people in crisis, why that matters, and how we can actually do it. So it's the language, my friend Mike Gerson wrote this years ago for George W. Bush, every unborn child protected in law and welcomed in life. Both of those parts are necessary. And I think right now, you have a lot of the American people who see the first part happening in some places They don't see the second part, and they don't know what that means or where that leads. That takes a lot of people coming in and saying, we need to talk about why we want to see vulnerable people as invisible. And the other part of it is, I mean, you talk about earlier, this sort of moment that we have right now of kind of this dystopian American carnage, let's slap back who our enemies are. A pro-life ethic doesn't fit with that. So it's part of it and it's there, but it's weird in terms of the fit because those things don't go together. Pro-life ethic isn't about owning your enemies. Mm -hmm. It's about seeing fundamental human dignity in a child and a mother. And so it just doesn't vibe as well as people would like it to. It's interesting you say that because one of the things that I saw after Haley spoke was I saw a lot of people on the kind of 
Christian nationalist right when Haley says nobody wants to see criminalizing women who get abortions. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of people going, actually, yes, we do. We want to prosecute women who get abortions. That's long been sort of outside the camp of the traditional pro-life movement. Why is that the case? It, well, that's really online cosplayers who have never been actually working in pro-life work or ministry. You can't find anybody who's been in the trenches working in the pro-life movement, whether in legislation and lobbying or on the ground in crisis pregnancy centers or other places, none of them are calling for criminalizing women. I mean, look at the kind of rhetoric that comes along with this criminalizing women, which often is a glee at, you know, you can't sustain a pro-life ethic with that. That's why my prediction is 10 years from now, the right will be pro-choice. I believe Hmm. that firmly with the exception of if the right continues to go in this direction. And, And I think a lot of people sort of predicted that, but they thought, oh, well, that is because it'll liberalize and become more kind of a Rockefeller Republican. You know, it's the other way around where I would be shocked if we don't have this sense of you shouldn't be aborting white babies. But mm-hmm. because social Darwinism and comprehensive human dignity, protection of vulnerability, they don't go together and they mm-hmm. just can't hold together for long. In mm-hmm. the same way that sexual libertinism cannot hold together with a pro-life ethic. They do not work together at all. And now you have both of those things starting to emerge. You already have the sexual revolutionary idea plus the very individualistic view of human decision-making on the left. And now you have on the right celebration of sexual libertinism and this kind of growing ethno-nationalism, I would be very surprised if what we don't have 10 years from now is a pro-life movement that is completely out of step with both of the major ideological streams in the country. So last thing before we wrap up, they acknowledged it as the elephant in the room last night was the fact that Donald Trump is ahead by 40 points, at least, in all of the polls. And he was not there. They hardly discussed him. I was surprised how little mention Trump got, given that he's beating all of them like a drum. Nikki Haley threw a punch at him earlier in the night, not for any of his criminality, but for inflating the deficit by $7 trillion. And then at one point, they did ask direct questions about what each of these candidates made of January 6th. And we'll hear some of their answers here. Whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong, the conduct is beneath the office of president. We're skating on thin ice and we cannot set a precedent where the party in power uses police force to indict its political opponents. It is wrong. 
When it comes to whether President Trump should serve or not, I trust the American people. Let them vote. Let them decide. But what they will tell you is that it is time for a new generational conservative leader. We should be asking ourselves a bigger question about the weaponization of the Department of Justice. When I'm president, the first thing I'll do is fire Merrick Garland. Second thing I'll do, fire Christopher Wray. Because we need Lady Justice to wear a blindfold. This election is not about January 6th of 2021. It's about January 20th of 2025, when the next president is going to take office. China is the number one threat to our country. And every minute that these eight candidates spend talking about the past instead about the future is time that is just the, the, you know who loves it? Biden loves it, but China loves it when we're talking about the past. What I think is so interesting in these answers is that Every one of them wants to deflect. And I don't understand why you're running against a person and cannot say they're disqualified because of these things and you should vote for me instead of them because these things are a problem. They don't want to say that directly. I am just still kind of gobsmacked that you would, you would run for president. You would go through all the misery of a presidential campaign and not throw a punch at your primary competitor. This is a live question in front of us right now, whether or not you are going to have a country where the Constitution can be suspended, whether or not, it's not a past issue. It's going into several criminal trials next year and will be throughout the entire presidential election. And that sort of deflection is just absolute insanity. And I can't believe that people would take it seriously. I don't think they do. But I also can't believe that one could have respect for oneself in saying that. And I just don't think it's going to hold for long of being able to just sort of, oh, if I say that, if I just kind of brush it off and say, oh, that's the past. We're not going to worry about it. Then people will stop asking me about it and I won't have to think about it. I just don't think that's credible and and has anywhere to go. And I also just don't think it's morally coherent. So at the same time, then, that this debate is going on over on the platform formerly known as Twitter, X, Tucker Carlson aired an interview with Donald Trump that was recorded earlier that day. You know, as of this morning, Carlson and the Trump campaign are declaring a big ratings victory. The embedded video, as posted, has more than 100 million views. That number's not really accurate. X actually doesn't show you video views. It's a feature they used to have, but they've removed that. It's just the impression numbers. That means how many times the post has appeared in feeds, counts individuals multiple times, et cetera, et cetera. So... Nonetheless, they're counting it a big victory. It was a remarkable thing to watch. If you're familiar with Tucker Carlson and if you're familiar with kind of the talking points of Donald Trump over the course of the last three years, it's nothing too striking or certainly not anything terribly new. And yet I found myself genuinely rattled listening to this because what's very clear from Tucker Carlson is his fascination in the sort of darkest and most violent threads in American life right now. One of the early questions in the interview with a candidate for the president of the United States was, did Jeffrey Epstein kill himself? And if he didn't, who did? And are they coming for you next? 
And so you stoke this fear of, oh, they came for Epstein because he found out about him and now they're going to come after you. And just these sort of hints at and nods towards violence, towards civil war, kind of again and again throughout the interview. And I listened to the whole thing and I finished and I just thought, this is deeply, deeply disturbing. And so long as Trump has access to a microphone and a video camera, his hold on the party, I think, is impenetrable because he's got such a focus on it's us versus them and I am your avatar. And that's why I think none of these other folks that we watched for two hours last night are going to break through. I'm trying to imagine at any other stage in modern American life in which someone would say to a candidate for president, do you think there's going to be civil war? And the response being, well, yeah, who knows? People, our people have got a lot of love and passion. I mean, mm-hmm. that's incomprehensible. I mean, the answer is, no, there's not going to be a civil war because we're going to do everything in our power to Americans to keep violence from happening and it never should happen and so forth. Not instead, and you'll notice when Tucker brought up civil war, Trump immediately pivoted to January 6th to say it was a just a great day, great crowd. People had uh, such Largest love. Largest crowd in the history of Washington. Yeah. You know, all, all of these things. I mean, he's putting those connections immediately together. And I'm telling you, this is my biggest worry right now going into the next year is the threat of political violence because there is so much that has become normalized to the point where we don't really even notice it. You think about how many, I, I, was, I was talking to a Bush administration official the other day and said, I mean, can you even imagine some young guy in the Bush administration being revealed to be a neo-Nazi even one time? And this person said, no, you can't. I mean, somebody uh, mouths off to somebody in a bar, they're out in the Bush administration. And now we've got just case after case after case after case of people who have this. And usually it's people that you think, how are they online this much anyway? And then you realize, oh, that's just their real name. They're even online more <laughs> under some fake name posting white supremacist and Nazi memes. And it's at the point where it's just like, oh, yeah, so-and-so was revealed to be saying Heil Hitler. How about that? I mean, that's, right. it's, it's, right. it's, it's, it's insanity. And then when you start adding to it this question of, well, I mean, who knows what's going to have to happen? That's a really dangerous place. And I'm very, very concerned about going into a time of political violence, especially with the way that American life is right now. I think that what it requires are Christians who are not fainting back into timidity, but who are willing to say, you know what, we're going to retain our moral core and we're going to say what the truth is and what's right, regardless of what happens. Well, on that note... We will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. 
Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. All right, welcome back. I am joined now by CT's Daniel Silliman. Daniel, welcome back to The Bulletin. Hey, Mike. It's good to be here. I'm always looking forward to this segment of our show. We call it, Hey, Daniel, What's Weird? A moment where you invite us into the strange history and world of corners of American religion or history that we may not be aware of. So, Daniel, what's weird? So I have a darker story for you today than we've talked about in the past. I want to tell you a story about a whistleblower and the My Lai Massacre. People may know My Lai is a village in Vietnam, and in March 16, 1968, a group of American soldiers, company of soldiers, descended on this village with a search-and-destroy mission. They thought they were supposed to find North Vietnamese fighters. They did not. It was women, children, old men. And they started recklessly killing them, as people may remember this from high school history or college history. They ended up killing, estimates are between 300 and 500 civilians for no reason. And then, as so often happens after something horrific happens, what follows? Nothing. There's lies, there's cover-up, the government actually releases a press release saying there was some fighting, we killed 120 enemy soldiers, a number they pull out of thin air. That's nothing. They just make it up. They would say it was a fierce day of bloody battle, but we won. And it's just completely covered up. It's totally silenced by the military. Until about a year later, it's actually March 1969, one soldier decides to write a letter and say... I wasn't there, but I was in a helicopter that flew over, and I've talked to a lot of people in this company, and I think something really bad happened. I think this was not who we want to be, and that this was not a mistake, but actually a war crime, a massacre. And he writes a letter, the soldier's name is Ron Ridenauer, and he writes a letter to President Nixon, no response, writes a letter to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's not clear that they read it. They certainly don't respond. And then he writes a letter to two dozen elected officials, congressmen and senators, and they almost all ignore him. But there are a couple of exceptions. Mo Udall, who is a Democrat from Arizona, and Barry Goldwater, who's a Republican from Arizona, at this point a former presidential candidate, Barry Goldwater, 
And they decide, okay, this doesn't sound good. We should at least, like, ask for an investigation. So they order the Pentagon to investigate. The Pentagon starts to investigate. And during the court-martial, that's also top secret and off the books, that an investigative reporter finds out about it. His investigative reporting kind of is a turning point in the war. This investigative report causes a lot of Americans who've been supportive of the war up until this point to start thinking, maybe we're the bad guys? Maybe something's gone terribly wrong? Is there part of our culture that's like that, that justifies that level of evil? And none of it would have happened without this letter from Rod Ridenour. So over the years, people would go back to him and say, hey, why did you write this letter? There were a hundred soldiers involved in the killing a, a, a part of a company of men, and yet you're the only one who wrote a letter. So what was going on there? Can you tell us, like, why did you become a whistleblower? That's such a weird thing to do. And then he says something like, well, can I tell you about Jesus? <laughs> and it mm. turns out Ron is actually an atheist, but he had been assigned a Mormon buddy in a jungle mission and spent several months in the jungle just paired up with this one guy. And what did they do in the jungle, thrashing around, not following orders and not knowing what they were doing? They debated religion. They mm. argued endlessly. And they actually read a book together, this terrible book from the 1970s called The Passover Plots, which is how mm. the resurrection was faked. It's a dumb conspiracy theory with like terrible evidence. Yeah. But there's, you know, it was a popular I paperback and they read it <laughs> and argued about it. He said it's hard to have religious arguments when you're in the jungle, possibly going to be surprised by guerrilla fighters. Like you have to kind of whisper argue the whole time. But they talked about this for months and Rittenauer was never convinced of. Christianity. He thought religion was stupid. He thought the book was stupid, but he liked the way it got a rise out of his Mormon friends. But he was really taken with Jesus. He was really moved by the person that taught these things and that acted this way and that was killed by the Roman Empire. And he started thinking in his own situation, who would Jesus be in the Vietnam War? Well, he wouldn't be me, an infantryman. He wouldn't be one of the guys in the helicopters. He wouldn't be a general. He wouldn't be the president. Jesus would be, if he were here, he would be with the villagers. He would be one of the villagers. He would be these people that we massacred. That's who if this person were real, if this person is anything like what we're reading about, that's who Jesus would be in this situation. And he says, that's the thing that made him think, I got to do something. I can't just hold this information. I can't just keep this secret on behalf of the military and the men I'm fighting with. And that's why he wrote the letter. So it's a weird, bad book that's trying to debunk the resurrection that inspired a weird conversation in a jungle that then touched this man's life. And, you know, though it didn't convert him, still touched his heart and transformed him and led mm. him to become a whistleblower and change American history. Well, that is a dark capstone on a weighty episode of The Bulletin this week. All right, Daniel, well, thank you for being with us here today. And uh, that is it for us this week. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producers are Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. 
Our associate producer is Azure Phelps. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Music by Dan Phelps. Show design by Brian Todd. Graphic design by Amy Jones. Social media by Kate Lucky. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.